This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Some terminology, not all of it completely standard, though some of it is. Um, there's like three views. One is kind of more inclusive view, and then there are two more specific views on the Eucharist and the Christian community. So some Christians accept the real presence. Um, that include Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, Lutherans, and various other people. So for instance, in Waco, we have uh, what we call Bapto-Catholics, and they're Baptists who really like Catholic liturgy and uh, tradition and feast, feast days, and sometimes even saints and Lent and things like that, though they're somewhat suspicious of the magisterium, but, but not that suspicious. And they, 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 many of them, I think, take the real presence quite seriously, and I think, think that it's probably true. So that's the claim that Jesus is really substantially present in the Eucharist. That's what I'll take it to be. There is another doctrine that, that gets added to it that sometimes gets the cute name real absence. And this is one that is less widely accepted, the Catholics, but historically, of course, very widely, uh, it's uh, accepted by Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, and it says that there is no bread or wine in the Eucharist. It's really absent. And, and then there is what you might call double presence. And so Anglicans and Lutherans tend to think, uh, accept both real presence of Christ and real presence of bread and wine. And so we call it double presence. The technical terms are uh, for a real presence plus real absence is transubstantiation. The substance of uh, bread and wine changes into Christ's body and blood so that there isn't any bread and wine remaining uh, on double presence view that bread and wine stays present. I'm not going to be talking about the differences between real absence and real presence in, in this talk uh, because I want to focus on the issue, the philosophical issues that real presence raises, the philosophical puzzles, difficulties for uh, believing. So we've seen these, uh, of course, we hear these uh, at Mass. Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. If we take this literally, we get the real presence. Um, I think, as I said, I think in response to one of the questions in the morning, it also suggests real absence. Because if bread and wine were present, then uh, the bread and wine is what's visible there. What's invisible is Christ's body. And what's being pointed to is presumably the visible thing. And yet he says, this is my body. This is my blood. So I think there is no visible substance there. Okay, some objections. First, a really old one, going back, you know, to the ancient Romans, uh, uh, persecutors of Christianity, isn't this cannibalism, and hence morally repugnant? Well, here's where I think the fact that there are appearances of bread and wine is important, right? 
we do not receive Christ's body and blood in a bloody way, but under the appearance of bread and wine. And I think most importantly, though, it's not just the appearances, but there's a difference. In cannibalism, uh, the victim's body is destroyed by the process. In the Eucharist, even though we consume Christ, and he, he gives himself uh, in this incredible self-giving uh, love to us, he remains undamaged in any way in heaven. Unchanged, except for the fact that he now knows that he's giving himself to us. I think that seems a fairly clear thing. I talked to uh, last time about uh, in the morning about Hume, so I think I will skip that. I want to focus on the, the big metaphysical worry. And maybe this is what we will spend our discussion on. How is this possible? So it seems like, more than seems, a real presence view involves what people call multi-location. The same thing located in multiple places. Christ's body and blood located in multiple churches as well as in heaven. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, that's not a problem because after all, we uh, faith as well as reason it tells us that with God, all things are possible. Faith, because scripture says so, and the church's tradition says so. Reason, because as we learned from Thomas Aquinas, they're really good uh, arguments for the existence of God and a God who is perfect and all-powerful. So you might say, okay, well, but with God, all things are possible. Well, yes, but that doesn't actually quite settle the question. All things are possible with God, but could God make a stone he didn't make. <laughs> there is, right? That makes no sense. What would be the stone? How could he make a stone that he cannot make? Uh, could he lift a stone too heavy to lift? Um, well, one of the insights that Thomas has on this that, that is generally accepted by the Catholic tradition with the exception of Descartes, is that uh, God can do anything, but thing here refers to things that aren't contradictory. Something that's, what's contradictory is not a thing. There's no such thing as an uncreated stone being created. It's not like there's a gap, there's something God can't do, create an uncreated stone. There's no, there's no act, no, sensible description. You can't think what we, the words just don't mean anything. The uncreating uncre an uncreated stone. There's just nothing to that. Um, so some things are just self-contradictory. They make no sense. And so we have to worry. We can't just say, well, God can do this because he can do anything. There needs to be something more. We need to say something about why it's not contradictory to be able to just answer with God can do it because he can do anything. It has to make sense, make logical sense. At least that's the that, that that's what I think. Now, some people go with Descartes and think God can even make contradictions true 
God can change logic. I don't know what that means. And that's uh, because all my knowledge is through logic. I can't understand what it would mean to do something that is something and is not something at the same time. But now it seems like it's a self-contradiction for Christ's body to be present in multiple places at once. I mean, what does it mean? It means it's, I mean, there's some kind of multi-presence that's easy, right? So I am, I am in this room and I'm in the hallway. I'm in two places at once. Well, yes, but I'm not completely in the room, right? I'm only partly in the room. That's why there's no problem. I'm partly in the hallway, partly in the room. not a problem. Now, there wouldn't be a problem of Christ, you know, uh, there wouldn't be any kind of logical problem of Christ being partly present in heaven and in many churches. He could just grow really long arms and really long fingers and bits of the fingers could be in different uh, churches and, uh, and his head could be in heaven, for instance. But that is not what the Catholic, uh, what the Christian tradition says. It's, it's not that a part of Christ is present at, in the Eucharist. It's his whole body is present in the Eucharist. So, the, uh, what makes it troubling, right, is the wholeness, right, being completely present in a, in a place. And you might think, you know, what does it actually mean to be completely present in a place? It means you're all there and none of you is outside of it. Now, if you put it that way, then it seems that you, keep, you can't be in more than one place because if you're completely there and nowhere outside it, then you're nowhere outside it. Well, maybe that's not the right way to think about what it is to be completely in the present. Maybe it means to be there with all one's parts or something like that. Okay, so in any case, you might, one might feel that there's some kind of contradiction in the idea of one thing being in, present in many places at once. And I think at this point there are like three kinds of responses that uh, we, uh, 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 the Catholics can give. The first one, and I think it's a perfectly sensible response, but it's not, a, it's not a satisfying one in the context of an intellectual retreat. It's just to say, well, we just take it on faith. God said it happens. If it happens, it's true. If it's true, it's not contradictory. Because a contradiction cannot be true, right? So we take it on faith that it's true, and hence we take it on faith that it's not a contradiction. And I think that's, that, that's perfectly satisfactory, and the vast majority of... Um, Christians through the ages probably took take an attitude like that. But I think it would be better if we could say something a little bit more satisfying than, than that. Um, I think there are two things we can do. One is offer some analogies that make it seem a bit more reasonable to think this is a possibility. And the second one is to speculate on how it might happen. Now, you know, there's, spec, there, there's sort of two things we, we could ask about speculation. You know, one is, what is what, we could speculate about what's actually happening, and then, then we could speculate about how God is actually doing it. The second one is beyond us, like how God's action works. Well, that is the mystery of God. That, uh, you know, God does things, but his doing things, we only understand by analogy with earthly things and how it is in itself, we cannot say anything about. But we can say what the doctor, we can speculate as to what it might mean to be in multiple places at once. That I think we can speculate about. So I'll, I'll offer some speculations. I don't know if any of them are true, 
But I'm hoping that if I offer enough of them, it becomes fairly reasonable to think, yeah, you know, I don't know if any of these are the right story, but it seems very reasonable to think that, uh, that there's no contradiction because I will give a number of stories, none of which seem to have any obvious contradiction in them. Okay, let's start with analogies. Time travel. That's a, that, that actually is a, would be a way of being present in multiple places at once, right? You know, you have the standard kind of time travel story where you, uh, you suddenly in the morning meet somebody who looks kind of like you, but is older than you. And you find out what happened was that they invented a time machine 10 years from now and came back in time and wanted to meet their past self, presumably to tell you how, what, what to study and how to get on the path of inventing a time machine. It seems like it's actually, you know, I don't know if time travel is logically possible or not, but there's something, it makes some sense. You understand what's, what's meant when you say, I met myself, my time traveling self. It seems like, it's not like saying, I met a square circle, or I saw a square circle. How did it look like? Well, it was, it was completely round and it had these four corners. Huh? What does that mean? I have no idea what that means, but... I met my future time traveling self. That's it. I, I think you have some idea of what that would be like. So I think, and if that were to happen, there would be no contradiction being in more than one place at once, even physically in more than one place at once. Now, I, I'm certainly, this is not one of the speculative ones. I do not think, I do not hey, give any credence to the idea that God is doing the Eucharist by time traveling multiple times through all the churches while changing shape. Um, but at least it suggests that we can kind of understand this idea of being present in more than one place at once. Um, when we watch science fiction about time travel, it's not like what it's it's not like um, puzzling over the passage in. Alice in Wonderland, where we read about the Cheshire cat's smile remaining, even though the cat becomes, is completely gone. You know, including its mouth, presumably, but the smile remains. That we, uh, that, that's very different. That, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But here, we make some sense of it. Okay, not much, but we can do something. Here's a more serious analogy. God is present everywhere. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there, says the psalm. Um, this is a part of all the great uh, monotheistic religions. They all hold that God is omnipresent. And he's not omnipresent in the way that, you know, the air is present all around the earth. So, uh, because air is, air is present all around the earth by parts. There's some air here and a different uh, part of the earth's atmosphere is in the, in the hallway. When God is present everywhere, He's not like that because God doesn't have any parts. He's not divided into parts. There's what uh, we call the doctrine of divine simplicity, that God has no parts. Um, he, where he is, he's wholly present. So he's completely in heaven and completely in uh, shell, as this translation has it. And it's a real kind of presence, though it's not a physical presence because God is not physical. So it's possible to have a real presence in multiple places at once. So we get two things, two lessons out of thinking about God's omnipresence. One of them is that it is possible to have 
presence in multiple places at once, and a real one. And the second one is that the idea of pre being present somewhere, there's more than one way of being present. There's physical presence, and then there's God's presence. So we learn there's more than one kind of real presence. And this could lead us to speculating that there could be that maybe what's happening in the Eucharist is there's another kind of presence. We have one kind of presence of God everywhere, another kind of presence of us being physically present somewhere, another one, maybe there's a th third way of being present. I mean, once we have two, why well, think that's all there is? There could be a third one, we call it sacramental presence. And so there could be a third way of being present with multiple locations. But now I want to, I want to do so, uh, for a bit do something a little bit daring, instead of actually talking of uh, is, is, uh, defending the idea that there could be a new kind of presence, a sacramental presence, I want to actually defend the very the idea that there might be no contradiction in Christ being fully physically present in multiple places, in a, in a, in exactly the way that we are present in one place, He could be present in more than one. How will I do that? Well, here I'm going to reach into some contemporary analytic philosophy. Um, one of the things uh, contemporary analytic philosophers are interested in, among many, is uh, the nature of space and the nature of what it is to be in a place. So, space, what is it? Well, you might say it's nothing at all. There's no such thing as space. But on the other hand, we learn from Einstein that space is curved. Hmm. Nothing can't be curved. That suggests that space is something. It's not, I mean, you can make, there, there are stories as to how you can have a curved space where the space isn't a thing. But it's at least somewhat natural to think of space as a thing. Einstein himself thought of it that way. He, he thought, uh, he said that space is the gravitational field. And fields are, I think he thought they were real things. Now here's one view, it's called substantivalism about space. The idea is that space is a real thing made up of smaller real things, which are places. Places are real things. And then to be in a place is to have a special kind of relationship to it. A locational relationship to it. Right? There are all sorts of relationships. There's friendship, there's hatred, and there's locational relation. And the locational relation is a relation between a thing and a place. So there's space, and then there are things, right? And they have relations to places, and I've sort of highlighted bits of space which are Places. This is a horse-shaped place. This is a cat-shaped place. This is a whatever protozoan-shaped place, right? And if that's if that if that's what it means to be in a place, it's just to be related to. There are these entities called places, and to be in a place is just to be related to it in a special way, which is what I've drawn as this red arrow. To be in many places is just to have a that kind of relationship to more than one thing. And why not? You can be friends with more than one thing. You can hate more than one thing. Why can't you can cause more than one thing? Why can't you have the, this, this kind of relationship to more than one thing? 
So imagine this cat. Why couldn't we show this, this relation to this this uh, cat shaped part of space could have another relation to this cat shaped uh, part of space, or maybe to, even to a non cat shaped part of space? If so, then the cat would be present in more than one place and completely present. It would be present here in exactly the same way that it's present here, just by having this special relationship that makes things be in one place or another. On this view, there's nothing more mysteri mysterious about being present in more than one place. It's just our, the familiar thing of being present, but more than once. Here's an opposed view. Um, I think it's slightly less popular among contemporary non uh, 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 contemporary secular philosophers than the substantival one, but it's still fairly popular, a relationalist view. Well, in this view, location is defined by relationships between, not between th things in space, but between things themselves. So here, you know, between the cat, uh, I'm Canadian, so I do this in metric, um, plus itself looks like in C. Uh, right? The horse is, uh, has this, relationship of being 125 centimeters from the cat. The cat has a relationship of being 125 centimeters from the horse. Uh, the horse has a relationship of being 200 centimeters from the protozoan. The protozoan has a similar relationship in the other direction and the cat and the protozoan have a relationship of 85 centimeters apart. And there's just this kind of relationship. There are relationships of friendship, there are relationships of uh, attracting one another gravitationally or romantically. <laughs> Uh, or electrostatically, lots of relationships, and one of them is a relationship of being at a certain distance apart. Um, and space, it just kind of constituted by this network of relationships of distance. I mean, here, once you have these three things, uh, well, first of all, you know that space has to be at least two-dimensional, because we have these three things at these two distances, at these kinds of distances, they can't be all in one line. They, they just wouldn't work for them to be in one line. The 125 and the 85 would have to add up to 200, but they would not. Um, it has to be a triangle shape. And so you can kind of read off the shape of space from the relationships of the things in space. What would it mean to be, have multi-location on this kind of a picture? It's not that hard. Imagine that in addition, we throw in some more relationships. In addition to the, uh, the cat having this the, this relationship to the horse, it has another relationship of being closer, uh, this is, uh, of being further from the horse, 205 centimeters from the horse, and a relationship of being a little closer to the protozoan, of 60 centimeters from it. Um, and then it has the odd relationship, and then this relationship has normally had the relationship of being at zero distance from itself, now it also has the relationship of being 80 centimeters from itself. You just add more relationships. You know, just like you can be friends with yourself and with others, uh, and with many people, you can, you can, you, you, you just add whatever these primitive relationships that define space are. You add more, and then in effect, when you've added these extra relationships, this is it. The cat was both here and here. I've sort of measured it out, I think. And if the cat were two hundred five centimeters from the horse and sixty centimeters from the protozoan, it would be here as well but it also has the old relationships. There's no contradiction here. It's just having more relationships. No contradiction. It's very strange, of course, as a picture, 
to think that there will be this multiplication of relationships. But God can do it with good re if he has good reason to do it. There's no contradiction. And that's all I want, is that there's no contradiction. There's another one. Okay, so Einstein's theory of relativity uh, tells us that space-time is curved. It's curved in all sorts of ways. You could curve it. It could curve in all sorts It's perfectly mathematically coherent. Suppose the space is curved in the shape of a, the surface of a bottle. Not the inside of the bottle, but the surface of the bottle. And now imagine if it's pinched like this. Let me some air out because the real one, space doesn't have any sort of container inside, but here I, here I sadly do. Uh, so imagine it gets pinched. Pinched so hard that this side here comes to be in the same place as this side here. Now this is kind of cool. Imagine that, suppose you're sitting right here on this side, and there's somebody else right here. If the space gets pinched together like that, now you're actually really close to this thing. Is just go through the pinched parts where the space coincides with itself and they'll come out on the other side and there you are. Right? There's no contradiction in supposing this kind of pinching of space together. It's strange, but there's no contradiction. Well, if there's no contradiction, God can do it because God can do anything that doesn't involve a contradiction. So God, if he wanted to, could pinch space in such a way that the part of space that uh, that a part of space that's in heaven is pinched to be in the same place as the chapel downstairs is pinched to be in the same place as uh, uh, all the other churches on earth this view you know I, i'm not saying it's this is how it happened like all of these things this is just a story of how it what makes this what makes this make logical sense but it may not be the true story but it has something attractive about it it means and if you're close to the Eucharist, you're close to heaven, quite literally. And you may say, well, heaven, is, it the, is there a place to be close to? Well, there has to be something like a place because Jesus and Mary have bodies. Bodies are things in a place. So yeah, there's a kind of place. And so in the Eucharist, we would literally be close to heaven on this kind of pinching view because space is pinched together in this way. Okay. Again, I'm not saying this is what it, what it is. Here's another view. There's one that's, uh, you know, more popular in this building. <laughs> um, Thomas Aquinas thinks that what it, what it means for an object to have a location is it has a certain kind of accidental property, a locational accidental property. So things, you know, I have a property of paleness, properties of shape, and amongst my properties, I have the accidents of location which keeps on changing as I move around. So I have this accident of location. Accidents are properties that a thing can exist without. My humanity is not something I can exist without, but my paleness is something I can exist without. I can just go to the beach and stop being pale. Um, being tall is something I can, I was once without. Then it's part of the, the doctrine that when the bread and wine cease to exist, their accidental properties remain their shape, their color, hmm. and their location. If their location is just another one of those accidental properties, their locational properties remain. 
So there's the shape, the color, and the locational properties. And then uh, the atomistic view is that Christ's body comes to be located in two ways. It's got the normal way of being located by its own locational accident, which locates it in heaven, somewhere not, uh, probably not far from Mary. Um, but it also comes to be located by being related to the locational accidents that remain from the bread and the wine. And so it inherits their location. And there's no contradiction in this. It's present in two ways, by, by its own locational accident, and then by these locational accidents of the bread and wine that remain after the bread and wine has disappeared. On, this is a view on which there are two kinds of presence, because being present by one's own accidents, being present by accidents that are not one's own, is a different thing. But they're both real ways of being present. So we have a number of stories. Skip the shape thing, because more we can talk about that. There's good reason in scripture and church teaching, especially and going back as early as we can, to believe in the real presence. There are it just sort of sit, sit down and come up with a bunch of accounts showing that there's no contradiction in it. If there's no contradiction, God can do it. Of course, uh, the fact that God can do it doesn't mean that God will do it. But there's also going to be a question, does God have good reason to do it? And that was part of the point of my first talk, as well as all the other talks, is we see the depth of meaning in the Eucharist, which gives good God good reason to do it. It's not just a whim. Hey, let's do some cool metaphysics and pinch space or make a, or make accidents exist without a substance or other strange things. There's actually really good reason for God to fulfill our love for Christ by making us be in his presence physically. So the fact that we can come up with multiple models, I think, is good reason to think it's not contradictory. If it's not contradictory, God can make it happen. That's no harder. This is actually, uh, sometimes people say that uh, there's this doctrine of omnipotence that, uh, uh, that says God, that just says God can do anything. Of course, I agree, God can do anything. But I think there's actually another uh, little bit of the doctrine of omnipotence that's kind of worth adding, uh, that I kind of like to add on. God can do anything equally easily. God can do anything with perfect ease. Nothing is more difficult than anything else for God. Yes, you know, bending space, making things, uh, accidents exist without their substances, that seems, that's really hard for us. In fact, perhaps impossible for us. Um, but, uh, but for God, it's no harder than anything else. Of course, these things are strange. But this is something, you know, I, I said this in the earlier talk. Um, you know, I've been doing philosophy for about half my life. What have I learned from this as a philosopher? You know, I learned very specific, particular things. This view is stupid. It doesn't work. This view has some hope. Uh, now here's, but what about deep stuff? What have I learned? The deep thing I've learned from doing philosophy is that reality is very strange. This is like you do philosophy about anything. And you start realizing logic says, here's a question. You know, 
uh, think of uh, a ship that has uh, that's sitting in the harbor and all of its wood is removed and replaced by fresh wood in exactly the same shape. And another ship is built from the wood that was taken from the first ship in the same shape as the original one. And then you ask, which is the original ship? Okay, you can now, now sort of, by logic, list what all the possible answers are. Neither, both, it's the first one, it's the second one. Those are the options. Or maybe just the whole question doesn't make sense would be another option. Right? There are like five options. Each of them has its series. Each of them is strange if you think it through. Each of them, if you take it and apply those, that reasoning to other cases, will give you some paradoxical conclusions. This is true throughout philosophy. There we constantly come up with things where if we think through what are the logical options, they're all strange. They're all mysterious. They're all not quite what we would expect. That's reality. Reality is really strange. That's the deep, deep thing I guess I've learned as a philosopher is that reality is strange. Um, earlier I gave the platypus, here's Schrodinger's cat. Can the cat be alive and dead at the same time? Seems not, but on the other hand, uh, the quantum mechanics seems to really pull in the direction of thinking we have if not maybe cats alive and dead, we have electrons doing weird things where they're going in one direction and in another, or all sorts of strange stuff. Uh, in relativity theory, we learn that um, there is no fact of the matter as to what is going on on a distant planet right now. It depends on your point of view, what counts as right now there versus what counts as right now here. It's all very strange. That's the world we live in. It's the fact that something is strange is not a reason not to believe it. Thank you. I imagine there will be no questions. Okay, good. <laughs> I guess I did want to say something more. You know, all this metaphysics, so what? Why, why do we do this? I mean, it seems kind of weird. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine you're in love with somebody and you get like this super great interest in seeing their x-rays and looking at their internal organs. It seems really perverse, right? I mean, like, and it just doesn't seem to help love, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, Augustine says that if you love someone, you want to know about them. And knowledge is required for love, but not that kind of detailed knowledge, right? Yes. But I think the thing is that here, the reason is not just out of sort of intellectual curiosity, and there's a lot of that, which is, and it's a valuable thing, but also so we can answer those who say this can't happen. And likewise, if somebody said, you know, imagine somebody said, you love somebody and somebody tells you, oh, human beings, they're an impossible thing. They're biologically impossible to have human beings. Well, then you might need to actually sort of poke around and look at x-rays and explain how a human being is actually biologically possible. And maybe some of it will actually give something of devotional value. I, I kind of like the pinching space model because it makes us close to heaven. Yeah. Uh, on your, say, subtractivalist model of space, yeah. you said that a cat could occupy multiple spaces, but you said a cat could occupy it and not actually in space. I think so. I think it would just be related to that. I mean, one way to think about it is it's atoms 
normally they each of its the way the cat occupies the space you might think is by its atoms occupying different parts of that space well those atoms could occupy a square shaped space it would be very strange yeah <laughs> I think you know the 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 last part you know about reality being strange. I think that's uh, you know. So before I went into philosophy, I knew the Trinity was a mystery, um, and so I knew that, and I believed in the Trinity, and so I I I knew I think faith is a kind of knowledge. So I knew that there were deep mysteries in the world, but I did not realize that just in the realm of reason, we also meet up with uh, things that are extremely puzzling, paradoxical, and strange. And I think that actually helps. I mean, maybe that no doubt is that the Trinity is a mystery in a deeper way than uh, the question of the ship being broken up and rebuilt again. But it's not something we should not think we should not expect you know god to be comprehensible uh, john chrysostom saint john chrysostom gave a series of uh, sermons against this really weird heresy which almost never comes up it was the heresy of the people who thought that god is completely comprehensible and uh, these heretics were using this to argue against the Trinity because they said, ah, if God is a Trinity, he's not comprehensible. But God is completely comprehensible, so he's not a Trinity. And so he gave a whole bunch of lectures on, you know, how scripture says, you know, God's ways are incomprehensible. And God's ways are incomprehensible. How much more uh, incomprehensible must God himself be? It's, it's, it hardly needs doing, but it needed doing at that time. Every so often, somebody comes up with things that God should be completely comprehensible. I think the last one to come up with was Hegel in the 19th century, who thought like uh, ultimate philosophy. In fact, he thought everything was completely comprehensible. You just accept the Hegelian system, you've got everything. Okay, that's the last prominent person. I mean, there's always madmen who do who think this. Yeah. This is really great, but the relationalists yeah it's not a real thing but there are these relations between things and space is constituted by those relations yeah it's a little bit probably if it doesn't fit super well with uh, relativity because you might think uh, because relativity suggests that there's curvature of space even in places where there's nothing nothing other than space Yeah. So I suppose um, what I don't necessarily understand how it becomes a contradiction for for one thing to be fully present in multiple spaces in, within a certain like it, it doesn't become immediately obvious that that's a contradiction. So I'm curious like how someone can spin that into one. Because that, that would require them to find. Thing is being capable of, like, 
does require that all things must be capable of resisting in multiple spaces. But that's not an obvious definition of a thing, that it cannot exist in multiple spaces and still be the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think there's uh, so much an argument there as it just, just it may seem contradictory, it may seem logically impossible. Sometimes we have this, like, that's a common reaction, and I have it too, to time travel, right? Or affecting the past. Could you affect the past? Now, I can't actually come up with a, like a clear logical contradiction, but there's a kind of feeling one has, there's something fishy there. Now, I actually, in the end, don't, don't think it is. I actually think it's okay, affecting the past can happen, miraculously at least. In, at least by the power of God, it clearly can. Mary's immaculate conception is she is saved from original sin by the power of God through the cross, because all salvation is through the cross, and yet she's before the cross. Um, but it, you know, some things just so sort of feel contradictory. So, it's, so yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm. There isn't like, I think, a sharp argument here. It's, it's more like a, a sort of suspicion of contradiction. And, and since the suspicion of contradiction, it's not like I have to refute an argument. All I'm trying to do is to make it seem less contradictory. It may try to reduce that suspicion by giving various models. For the Trinity, it's a little hard. You can actually try to formulate arguments that are, that are I think, a little bit sharper. And I, you can answer them, too, I think. But, uh, but the arguments are a little bit sharper for why there might be a contradiction. But it's not my job here to either challenge or defend the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. Have you experienced uh, going over these speculations with people who are challenging um, these mysteries? Because, of course, there's um, when you're engaged in that kind of conversation, there's many more motivations behind why people are objecting. Yeah, I haven't had much. Um, I gave a Thomistic Institute talk of, uh, at Baylor, and I was kind of hoping to get a, that there will be a number of Protestants attending, and maybe there were, but not during the question period, or at least they didn't seem, maybe it just the Protestants in Waco are too friendly to Catholicism, so I, there wasn't actually any hard pushback uh, there. Um, there probably was some at that uh, conference where, or whatever meeting it was with um, uh, the people I talked about in the morning, and I, I did talk about some of the metaphysics with them, but I can't remember anything of that event. I don't know what happened there. I'm almost starting to think all I have is note, my preparatory notes, and maybe I had like got sick and never went or something, because I can't remember anything from that. I have a date of 2015, but it's not in my CV. I, have, I just have the slides. So that so there, I would have gotten pushback because I know that one of those people is uh, really interested in metaphysics, but I can't remember what they said, or if they said anything, or if I was even there. Sorry, I'm seeing you going crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>